Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know Just what you've done And uh, good evening. Welcome to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now Scan Blog Talk Radio Show. NASCA is the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Victoria Kelly, and I am your host for this evening. We are on scan number 3169. I'm excited to introduce to you our special guest this evening. However, first, I would like to say that here at NASCA, we have a single purpose to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, CSA. Presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Again, we are on scan number 3169, and if you'd like to be part of the panel this evening or any other evening, Monday through Friday nights, please call 646, let me start again, 646, Five nine five two one one eight. Um, my co-host or myself will meet you on the back line and ask if you would like uh, to ask a question or you have anything uh, to comment um, on on our uh, guest speaker tonight. Uh, we we'd love to have you join us and support our guest. Now, our special guest this evening is Monica Boglin, and um, she's from I'm gonna probably say it wrong, Palala. <laughs> sorry, Washington, a survivor of sexual, physical, and emotional child abuse. Her predators were all family members, and her parents were intent on passing on to Monica the behavior that their parents had done to them. She also has lived with lupus since she was 29, a painful autoimmune disease that has long been linked to adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Monica became a life coach and a therapist and notes. I finally found a way to forgive the unforgivable and to firmly keep everyone and everything that is harmful out of my life, which has been linked to. 
She earned her master's degree in metaphysical science and counseling and is well on her way to earning a PhD in the same field. I hope to further use my story, she says, as a way to become of service and to help those along the path to their own healing because I now know that hope and help is available. On these episodes, we welcome various co-hosts, survivor professionals, who will assist in fielding questions and lead a variety of topics suggested by our call-in participants. Their trauma-informed perspectives as survivor professionals will help them guide discussions on the issues of child abuse, trauma, and healthy human sexuality that springs from questions and topics brought to you by our listeners. Everyone is invited to engage on tonight's show. And please visit the NASCA.org website, which is N-A-A-S-C-A.org website. And I also want to mention that we also have three days a week, we have uh, pure um, survivor support groups. Um, and uh, those are um, three afternoons a week. Well, afternoon in my place, they're all different around around but um you can check out the nasco website for that information and much more so without further ado i'm gonna um bring on monica hello monica how are you doing this evening i'm great how are you oh i'm fantastic as always (laughs) right now we don't have yeah i I was trying to chime in earlier that the city Mm -hmm. i'm still having trouble pronouncing it after almost five years of living here. So it's, I tell people, I pronounce it with a W-A. So Puyallup, okay. which is about okay. a 30-minute or so drive south of Seattle. It's where I'm located. Oh, oh okay. That's great. Yeah. And, uh, well, you said you came with a topic, but would you like to give us a little background um, on your story so that people kind of know you? I kind of read some of it in the bio, but. Maybe just a little uh, bit about bio, um, Yes, everything there is accurate. Um, I will be turning 50 years old this year, and I have been a 20-year survivor of lupus, uh, probably 21 years now moving, actually looking at the, the actual uh, testing and all of that stuff you have to go through. Yeah. My survivor story, though, for abuse stems back to some of my earliest memories in childhood, which are probably eight, nine, or ten years old. And who knows how many more before then that our mind is blocked out and we can't remember. So a survivor of childhood abuse, molestation by my older brother, physical abuse by my father, and emotional abuse by my mother, all of which were um, inherited, unfortunately, chronic toxic behaviors that they'd learned from the people Mm -hmm. who abused them. And what I've learned in my years um, as a teaching and now moving forward as a counseling professional is that all behavior is learned. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you've learned negative behavior, you, for one, have to acknowledge that it's negative and toxic. You can unlearn Mm -hmm. it. You can learn right. how to do things differently or better. Unfortunately, we live in a world where not everyone's brains works the same. Everyone mm-hmm. has the literal science behind how their brain works. Some of us are yeah. born with bigger or less functioning amygdalas, which are responsible for the emotional sector of the brain, 
which is therefore mm-hmm. responsible for compassion and empathy towards your fellow man. So if mm-hmm. you are giving out hurt and abuse and toxic words and physical blows and, or you're a victim of being raped or molested, it's very likely that the abuser has no conscious um, ability to discern between what is right and wrong or what is good or bad. They just haven't mm-hmm. developed that ability, and that is probably the single most deciding factor for me, that I had mm-hmm. to step outside of my emotional self, the little girl self with me that um, stepped away from the molestation at around 11 or 12 years old. I put a stop to it, physical abuse with my father at around 16 the emotional mm-hmm. abuse, just really finally cutting my family off at around 21 years old or so. I remember just mm-hmm. certain specific instances where I remember saying, no, I've had enough. So yeah. from age 21 onward, I would say, 29 years of actually putting in more effort to love myself and hug myself and understanding that things which are good or bad or right or wrong, and putting them in their proper place and not Mm -hmm. allowing those bad things to creep up in my life again. Yeah, I know that you mentioned mentioned generational abuse, and I know I'm talking to a lot of people that that talk about that generational abuse, and I think it's just so ingrained, like you said, in, in families that you really have to challenge it. And, and like you said, really have to make an effort to uh, put a stop to it. Even a lot of people, you know, older people that, you know, um, you think by a certain time they'd be able to say, you know, my family is toxic. I, I'm not going to be around them. You know, this exactly. is not healthy for me. But they just it, cannot it doesn't, it doesn't happen even in right. an 80-year-old person. They mm-hmm. could be as feeble and frail and sitting alone and some remote nursing home that their family has stuck them in and they are still filled with anger and negativity and have really no clue why they're so mad, why they're so angry. It's a very hard thing for them to come to that end of life to get some type of peace. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. what I've learned to tell people, and we're going to talk about that in the stages of recovery, is ultimately your abuser's peace of mind and their being given forgiveness is really not your responsibility. It's not. Mm -hmm. They've abused you enough. And unfortunately, they will continue to suck the life out of you like a vampire if you wait Mm -hmm. from age, say, 11 or 12, that I remember stopping it with Mm -hmm. my brother, if he has mm-hmm. never addressed it with me, and I'm 50 years old. Yeah. I attempt to address it with my father periodically. I talk with him and my mother about every three, four, or five years. They're in their late 70s now. As soon as they hear me, and I've learned to approach it in a calm voice and a calm manner, but we still need to talk about these things. You speaking about the abuse, it's ultimately helpful for them. I try to make sure I plant those seeds. 
It's still where they shut down, they change the subject, they deflect, they become angry with me. And I've done all I can do, but I do know that part of my recovery is speaking about any abuse, anything that's Mm -hmm. toxic, anything that's negative, whenever it comes up. Because the biggest weapon that the abusers used against you before we found our voice was silence. They threaten you with silence. They, they, I tell people, you rarely ever saw a father wailing away on his kid in the middle of their front yard with all the neighbors watching. No, the kids got to be inside the home in the privacy of the home because that's what the abusers thought they did. You rarely see a kid getting raped or molested Mm -hmm. in the middle of the street at a stop sign where a thousand Mm -hmm. people are out watching. No, they depend on silence. They depend on removing you from view because you are actually not an entity to them. You don't matter to them. It's all about them. So one Uh thing I can definitely tell people upon your recovery is to set boundaries and to know that your abusers may never ask for forgiveness. It is not even up to you to give them the grace and say that you forgive them because they are never going to acknowledge what you're forgiving them for. And so when you know that it's generational, I can only encourage people, you be that one in your generation to say no more here and now moving forward. You're going to be the one that breaks the curse or breaks the chain. Mm -hmm. Now, the abusers are going to do what they always do, continue to abuse. Now that they can't physically abuse you anymore, now you become the topic of gossip. You become the black sheep. You become ostracized because you don't participate in their behavior anymore. And even participating in it is because you sat around and you know what's going on and you don't say anything about it. Your inaction is still enabling them, and the enablement becomes your participation. So I can only encourage people to back into it. They try to suck you back into it by the guilt and shame of it. You know, oh, I can't believe you're not bringing my grandchild around here, you know, and I really miss them. And, you know, um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of ways that um, the guilt and shame play in there, too. Or I'm helping out financially when they're those strings that, that they can pull. So I've done a little research, and some of the research comes from um, – uh, one of the topics that I had to research uh, where I received my, uh, my bachelor's, master's, and then my subsequent Ph.D. I'm working on, and that's from the University of Metaphysical Sciences. Um, the topic is one of the topics we reviewed was trauma and recovery. So through that specifically is where I wanted to take how we're in understanding what we can do and understanding what trauma is and then understanding how we can recover, which is where I wanted to come up with the topic for tonight, which is, yeah. for me, five stages of recovery and healing from trauma. Okay. So in That's past instances, without us having to go through too much of review things done on previous Thursdays, and I've done the fourth Thursday previously all the way up 
from, I'll say, mid summer of 2022 up until um, the past few months that I've been out absent, so I'll say up until about February or March of this year. I've had every fourth Thursday, so I do tell people if you want to go back and look at those dates and you can see where we are, but I have been trying to put a heavy focus on what trauma is you know, and identifying different things with trauma, even identifying um, negative toxic behaviors with your abusers. Trauma itself, um, I will define it as we do here at NASCA, will be in keeping with those guiding principles. It's anything that is not healthy for the spirit, the mind, or the body. It could be anything traumatic. So, as adult survivors, we could have survived molestation or rape abuse as children, physical childhood abuse, emotional abuse, which I put under the umbrella of emotional neglect. So you having a parent, as in the case of both of mine, but really in the case of my mother, just not loving or not nurturing as a caregiver. She had no instinct of protectiveness for her kids to protect us from the abuse from my father because as her being an abused woman, I don't know if she just never developed that instinct, never bothered to get it. Um, I did feel for a long time that as kids we were used as pawns as a way for her to play these games of how to focus on the kids being bad, and so he would well down on us so he wouldn't go in heavy on her for whatever reason. You know, it, it, it was just these type of things that can bother you emotionally. Um, any physical abuse, uh, domestic violence we talked about, of course, physical child abuse, um, whether you're the uh, receiver of it in a domestic partnership, physical abuse, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, which a lot of people coming out of childhood probably are being diagnosed with in a delayed manner because it's just one of those things that's just not talked about. So anything that is traumatic is where your mind, your body, your spirit has reached a place of where it's just not functioning in its most healthiest place. And so mm-hmm. here in the support group of professionals, we want to help ourselves and help each other find ways to recover. And that's what I wanted to kind of hone in on tonight. Mm-hmm. One of the first things in my research I'll throw out there is I would like for everyone to be able to acknowledge that the abusers or those who have hurt us will never heal us. Okay, you can attempt the confrontation, but I guard you to not be too hopeful that they will ever admit it or apologize for it. So please don't set yourself up for an emotional letdown. I did that for years with my parents. Um, And again, it just led to deflection, then started an argument. I am being the worst child that they've ever had. I They wish I was never born. I get the silent treatment. I get told to family members and friends that nothing negative that I'm actually doing, right? So I'm not out robbing banks or killing people or being a prostitute or 
constantly in and out of jail. I go to college. I work. I, I support myself. I live alone. I'm a fairly productive person in society, you know. I've started a business. But when it comes to dealing with these so-called skeletons in the closet, and I have proof of the abuse because I'm living with a chronic illness as a result of it, I'm the bad guy. And so Monica gets ostracized. Monica gets negative talk. Monica gets these negative words. But no one, as far as the mother and father, they can never tell me what I've actually done for them to continue to try to treat me this way. So when it doesn't happen, just don't spend too much energy trying to force it to happen. Again, be vocal in your word choice. You will have to get stronger and stronger and stronger to be able to speak those words without anger, without it constantly making you tear up and cry and break down. Uh, because the anger is what the abusers are used to. The crying is what they want because they still want to know that they have power over you. It takes time. So not spending time, again, trying to have the conversation with your abusers, but hopefully finding groups like NASCA or friends or maybe a spiritual leader or advisor or something to be able to hear your story, you know, Find a, a good therapist, a, a, a good community outreach center. Join a group like NASCA where you hear other people's stories and you can listen to the the similarities to your stories and theirs because a lot of abuse survivors, we feel alone in our abuse journey, but we're not. Ultimately, I really do think that this thing that we call childhood abuse, it's it's got to be stacked up there, which is, I, again, for me, I've only been able to draw the line to remove my emotional self by looking at it from a scientific and medical view, because there's no other logical reason on earth why I would have a brother who feels the need to molest me, a mother who has feels the need to tell me I hate that you were born, a father to open hand slap me with enough force to knock me back 10 feet across the room. Mm-hmm. There's nothing yeah, I've, anyone deserves. They've asked, asked me, why, why did your dad do that? They'd say, why did your dad do that? And I'd be like, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I don't know why, you know. Um, I don't have an answer to that question, and it kind of – Upsetting people exactly. ask that. Because the, the abuse is not yours. It's not mine. That's their behavior. Never make an abuser's behavior about you. And, again, from the emotional standpoint, I would never have an answer for it. But from a scientific or medical standpoint, there is a mental illness there. There is a emotionally low intelligence reason there on their part. And these individuals, again, were exhibiting behavior that either was done to them or they saw it secondhand and never learned new behavior. So it was just the type of behavior that they learned and the type of behavior that they exhibited, and they became, quote, unquote, adults and 
I'll say generations past, you know, we've got adults, but that's how I was raised or that's how I was taught if they were questioned about their behavior. And it never dawned on them to learn new behaviors. So it'll never be about me. It'll never be about you. All I can tell you is I survived it. I endured it and I survived it. I was not the abuser. So the Mm -hmm. why going to zap too much energy from us if we spend too much time trying to figure out because that's still the little boy, the little girl in us that's still left unprotected that the abuser actually made us think that the abuse was our fault. Yeah, I didn't you know? I didn't start my healing until, you know, I stopped asking why would he do something like that to me? You know, and, and all of a sudden I said, I don't care. These are the effects of what was done to me. And then, you know, that's when I got started getting help. Exactly. I was so looking for at me with my folks, again, mine didn't really kick in and start until I was around 28 or 29 when I was diagnosed with lupus. Um, but my doctors are telling me your mental health, your emotional health, you cannot afford to be upset and stressed out and around people that cause you drama. Don't get involved in them. It was still several years later that the word ACEs came up. Adults, adverse childhood experiences is what ACEs is about. And I first heard of it through an ACEs talk by a Dr. Nadine Birch. She is now the Surgeon General of California. But ACEs started as research for uh, kids that suffer from childhood obesity and did other childhood disorders or diseases or phenomena that progressed into adulthood and autoimmune diseases or an unhealthy um, emotional and mental health, how it affects mm-hmm. your lymphatic system and the whole rabbit hole of where that takes you down. Does your body receive the proper Could you explain what lupus is in case people aren't sure what it is? I have SLE, which is systematic lupus erythematosus. It is a part of autoimmune diseases, which is a functioning part of the lymphatic system in the body. The lymphatic system is largely responsible for hormone balance or imbalance. It is responsible for production of uh, red blood cells and white blood cells. And specifically for lupus, my body um, overproduces white blood. Anyone that gets sick, white blood cells are produced to um, as your red blood cells are there to produce healthy blood and to get all of your nutrients from your uh, food and your water intake and get those things delivered through the body for proper body and organ function, correct, along with carrying oxygen through the body. What happens is when white blood cells become overactive or they produce more than what red blood cells are producing, the white blood cells begin to attack the red blood cells because the body has triggered itself into believing that there is a disease present meaning your body is literally under siege from a real or perceived threat. So being a child of 
uh, child abuse, again, we walked on eggshells the entire time. You didn't know if you were going to come home from school and you drop, you know, your, I don't know, you're taking off your shoes at the back door and you drop the sock in the floor and you forgot about it and you're off doing your homework and next thing you know, you get punched in the side of the head because you dropped the sock in the middle of the floor. You were under constant threat of abuse, whether the abuse was happening or not. So your body goes into a mode of where it is constantly heightened, anxiety and fear and worry, and it functions abnormally anyway through that for whatever significant amount of time, and specifically in the childhood areas, you're talking about the formative years. Your body just begins to try to form and work itself through that to the point to where it literally just gives out or gives up. And so around the age that I was diagnosed, 27 or 28, my immune system began to crash. It just was not functioning properly. So a year's worth of um, testing through different doctors, hematology, rheumatology. I had to see a doctor because I had swollen lymph nodes in and around my neck. Um, I had to see a, um, not a hematology doctor, the doctor for um, kidney biopsies. We had to do that. We had to, one of the last things I began to show spots of vitiligo along my skin where I was losing color in the functioning of the skin. And initially they thought it was just discoid lupus, which only affects the skin. But testing when certain things are X'd out and then you have a list of about 10 or 11 other points that you have to qualify for over half of those that you have show or show those symptoms sometimes. And the last of it is the uh, blood count testing that you would normally get to test your actual blood count for your red blood cells, and it comes back and says, hey, okay, red blood count is low, you have the um, arthritis, you have the um, pain and headaches, you have the uh, vitiligo that's showing up, um, you have several other little checkpoints on the health. So you have six things out of this sub-11, you have lupus. And what they do is focus how on long, getting your how long system. How long was that testing before you finally, like, got a correct diagnosis? Back um, then, I did testing for approximately a year from the time that I went to see the doctor complaining of one other medical issue. And he says, well, this is not something that I know that I can look at. I'm going to recommend you to a rheumatologist because I began to complain more about the stiffness and functioning in my arms and hands. And at that time, I was a full-time hairstylist. So I thought it was the onset of that. And uh, so the rheumatologist is typically who most people will see for lupus. And uh, he looked at, again, the, the vitiligo was starting and then a few other things um, with um, the blood work that it came back. And so he put me through the other testing with other things to make sure it wasn't that. 
And so it took about a year to get all of the other tests done and out of the way and then to pinpoint everything to lupus. So, again, I can't tell people how important it is to keep a healthy mind and a healthy body because even if I had not focused on the lupus, I look at other things that you do as a coping mechanism to deal with mm-hmm. abuse. My older brother is a functioning alcoholic. My sister was diagnosed as with bipolar um, borderline personality disorder uh, when she was about 18 when she entered the Navy. Neither one of them, as far as I'm concerned, are receiving professional help at this point. they just done what they've always done to make their way through life, but they also don't address the issue of abuse with the way that I do because I know that they're also in an emotionally crippled state because my parents have successfully, because they never left home, I'll put it that way. They both did military service for about two years, and they returned back to the original city that we lived in, and they both lived maybe a 10- or 20-minute drive away from our childhood home. So I say literally they've never left home. So they've remained in the same contact and had that same familiar family association with our parents that we've had since I was a child. Since my a year or so after me being diagnosed with lupus, I had to tell myself, I got to get out of here. I got to get away from these people. They are literally making me sick. So for over 20 years, I haven't lived in that state of where my parents live. And I put further and further distance between us, less and less contact, and that has been one checkpoint that has allowed me the space to be able to literally be around uh, more supportive friends and be around things that don't constantly remind me of the abuse so I can heal and grow. I want to move on to uh, my second point here. Wait, can we take a break oh. here? We've got um, two other people on the line. We've got um, okay. um, Annie is on here. Um, we've got another uh, person listening. But um, I was going to put um, Annie on and see if she has any questions or comments or just want to say hi. Sure, great. Okay. Hi. Hi, Monica. Hey, Annie. How are you? Oh, I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm I'm sorry to listen to your tales of lupus. That's that's not an easy thing. Um, And I don't really have any comments at this time, so I'll go back to listening. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on, and I'm glad you glad you're here, Annie. Um, and uh, our other listener, um, we appreciate you uh, coming on as well and uh, um, supporting our uh, guest, Monica. So back to you, Monica. Okay. I did want to say to the listener or anyone else that wants to call in, because I always put that up on any of my social media. I actually just started a new Instagram page today at Miss B the Healer. Um, if you want to just call in and listen, do that. And I'm hoping that they have a way that they would want to send a question in and we can just address it discreetly online. So I'll put that out there right now. So I'm, someone wants to text me a question, you can do that at 678 632 
1098. Just put NASCA, put your question in, and then I'll make sure that we get to it before the end of the call. Oh, thank you. That's a great idea. Thank you very much. All right. So my second point I wanted to talk about in stages of recovery is that I wanted us all to be mindful or consciously cautious if abuse is still present even in different people or relationships. Okay, the original abusers may or may not be around, but you have to recognize behavior. Uh, what I can tell you that is in humans, we are not as evolved as we would like to be, right? So human behavior is more characteristically common than it's not because it's a taught, and it's a taught behavior, therefore it becomes a learned behavior. So be cautiously Consciously cautious of your surroundings. Like I just said, I had to physically move away from my childhood home and all of my family. The first city I moved to, uh, I took a job uh, as a director and a teacher on on, uh, a local college. was just about not totally out of state, but it was about five hours away from my childhood home. So far enough that I didn't know anyone, and I knew it was going to be too much of a regular daily pop-in, I need to come and talk to you about this, or this is going on with this parent, or this brother, or this wife, or this husband, that I was allowing to happen, you know, just being a stone's throw away from my familiar surroundings. And I moved to that location with about 500 bucks in my pocket, my laptop, and one suitcase, and I just told myself, I'm going, I'm out of here. So what you got to do is recognize what behaviors are characteristics of abusive people. We, again, I spoke about this on previous NASCAS, uh hosting on Thursdays that I've done. So please go and, and find what some of those are. Abusers are by and largely toxic people. They speak negatively. Um And I'll put this out there. I have people that periodically have contacted me about a family gathering or get-together or family picture or something that someone has posted on some other social media. And we're all looking at best dressed, hair's coiffed, we look good, all this kind of stuff. And people want to always comment, oh, you guys look like such a happy family. Mm. And my comment, to be truthful, is to say, yeah, well, I can't remember because it happens so often if we left that family gathering or left church or left Easter Sunday where we were dressed up so well. If I got home that night and I got my brains beat out or if I got home that night and got in my bed and my brother crept into my bedroom and began to touch me and molest me inappropriately. If before going to church my mother told me, that she did my hand dress me up, but I got walloped in the head with a brush because I wasn't sitting still. I was fidgeting too much. And you're just well, so bad. You're so my- evil. You're going to make me look like this and yeah. I'm your mother and do what I say and that type stuff because it happens so often. That's yeah, I was That's I was showing my That's granddaughter. I was showing my granddaughter some family pictures, you know, and uh, I kept looking at my face and looking at my face, looking at my face, and I said, you know, I remember these pictures. 
I said, but, you know, I wasn't happy during them, but I always remember them saying, say cheese or smile, look like you're having a good time. And and just to know that somebody's saying smile or say cheese, you know, exactly. it, it, it's like, yeah, you know that, you know, and I look, was looking back at them and anybody else looking at them would say, oh, my God, you know, you sure are happy kids. <laughs> but they didn't know exactly. it was behind that. But just think about how, in even a minute part of it, because one thing, again, I said before, one of the biggest weapons for abusers is silence. Another big part of it is secrecy. So they had to keep the abuse secret, and they threatened us whatever was going to happen with the abuse. We knew it was going to happen, so that they always acted on the threat in one way or the other. But it was the secrecy about it because they never did it in public. But just think about if the very same people who took that picture, you're sitting there with your mom and dad, brother, whoever's doing the abuse, what if that same person actually looked at the kid who's there and actually said, hey, kid, are you okay? Do you need to tell them something? Have you been abused by your parent today or your brother? Just think about a mountain of what could have been helped crashing down at that point. Yep. If yeah. someone had bothered to replace that fake smile with the faded, no one needs to have them ever again in their life, Polaroid pictures that eventually fade and blow off the face of the earth photos. Yeah. Intangible objects. But you actually being asked if you're actually healthy and well and safe. Imagine if one person asked you that question every time they told you to put on a fake smile for the camera. Mm-hmm. Imagine yeah. how healthy we would all be. Mm-hmm. I know that there were some pictures that were earlier, you know, and I, I remember telling one of my friends, I said, yeah, these pictures I have like this blank stare or this, you know, frozen stare or just empty stare, like, you know, um, like dead eyes and everything. And I said, I hadn't learned how to look normal. And I had one of my cousins said, we had no idea that abuse was going on. I said, yeah, I worked very hard to make sure nobody knew it was going on, you know. Yeah. So what what I was doing worked in, in my little mind, you know. Um, yeah, because like you said, you're, you're threatened to keep those secrets. And that vein with you, it was probably not until, I I can't remember what year, what happened, but I just do remember a guy. We were taking senior pictures where you take your cap and gown pictures or your, um, where you would take the yearbook pictures where you had to put on the little gown and the the guys would put on the the tie and the button-up shirt and all that. We were taking those pictures. And I remember it wasn't a cameraman. It was just actually guys in my classroom. And he's like, why don't you ever smile? He's like, you have to wait until the cameraman to tell you to smile. I remember hearing that once or twice after I graduated high school. I got a job. I remember being at a McDonald's once. It came up again. Someone said, well, you never – I'm like, but I'm not – why are you always frowning all the time? I'm like, I'm not mad about anything. What do you mean? It was the yeah. third time that it happened to me. I was, I probably started hairdressing at that point. 
And I, it took one of my other hairdressing buddies to say, he called it something else back then. What people you may hear now, they call it the resting bitch face, you know, for, for, for lack of a better word. He called mm-hmm. it something else then, and he's like, you know what, it's just probably something that she's been through that she doesn't yeah. realize that you have that face all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. He became one of my well, closest compliments. When I started therapy, yeah. I looked in the mirror, and it was so disturbing what I saw in the mirror. I don't know if it was my eyes or my face, like what you were just talking about. But I went around and covered up all my mirrors. I didn't take them down. I covered them all up because I couldn't stand on looking in them. And I guess I didn't take them down because maybe I thought one day I would be able to, you know, and one day I was able well, to. Well, what I started doing after that, mm-hmm. I used to keep my high school yearbook. I used to keep whatever pictures or things of holidays and things, I started getting rid of that crap after that point because I started allowing myself to be influenced by my friends who were happy, they were healthy. Um, I remember going to their house and meeting their families, and, uh, again, it could have been abuse there, but I didn't think they never mentioned it to me. But I'm looking at families where dads are actually supportive of their daughters and, and mothers are hugging their kids and telling them I love mm-hmm. you and they're having mm-hmm. dinner without an argument, you know, they're 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 speaking kind words to each other without, you know, I hate this and I hate that, but it's my duty yeah. as a mother to cook a dinner, so sit down and eat. Mm-hmm. It was just it was weird to me to see normal stuff going on with people. Yeah, um, I go to my, I go to my See, I see how my daughter reacts to my granddaughter, you know, and sometimes I just want to start crying, you know, because it's like this was so beautiful seeing my daughter be, you know, a healthy, nurturing mother, and it just, you know, I mean, I did my best to do my best, but um, you know, just to just to see her in in that role, um, I'm just so proud of her. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I had to make a decision, put my kids in permanent foster care because I realized I wasn't the mom I wanted to be and I wasn't the mom my kids deserved me to be because I was in that of psych words, you know, and, and my mental health was really bad. And I made that well, choice. That <laughs> is where your consciousness comes in and you were cautious of it around your daughter. Mm-hmm. So you, another word for it, people called it mindfulness. You're being yeah. mindful of what you've been through and mindful mm-hmm. of how it could possibly manage the past abuse could manifest yeah. in you because I can tell you there's only one other way to go. Three ways to me I'll say a person will deal with um, unrealized recovery in their abuse. Mm-hmm. One, you mimic the behavior again, and now you become the abuser because you've never learned anything else, right? Two, um, we have our breakdowns, our mental health are affected. We just, we internalize things, which is what happened with me and, and Lucas. Other things happen with people, like I said, my brother being an alcoholic, my sister having borderline personality disorder. It shows up in some other area of the body that you're not helping. You don't have to abuse other people, but some other area of your life is going to show the dysfunction of the trauma 
Or thirdly, you can rely on the fact that thank goodness for anyone who reaches out to in their spirituality or religion even to a higher power, listening to uh, uh, uh Surrounding yourself, again, with good people, good-hearted people, not toxic people, positive people, passionate people, and you become aware of what that abuse was and you put it in your mind that you are not going to replicate the same thing for yourself or for your children moving forward. And yeah, I started that's the when only way that you can move yeah. as a result of abuse. It's only one of those three ways for me. I started therapy when I escaped from my biological father when my uh, daughter was like, I don't know, six months old a year. And then I started going to therapy. And um, I told my grandmother, she, well, I started going to a parenting group. And my grandmother says, why are you going to a parenting group? Because I said, because I want to be a better parent. She goes, well, I never went to any parenting groups. And you turned out just fine. And I thought, yeah, fine, all right. You know, I'm, I've been locked up in this, you know, after that, I was locked up in the state mental hospital. I was in not a psychiatric unit. You know, if you call yeah. that, fine. You know. <laughs> no, but, yeah, fine. you know, direct one effort of the things to I had work. to do with my own mm-hmm. mother was actually get the words out of my mouth. I did it to her several years ago. And I just did it to my father again recently. I had to call and speak with them about some medical things over the holidays, and I haven't spoken with them in three or four years. So it's about about that off, about a good 10-minute conversation that I have to go because the, these people are literally the same people that raised me at 10 years old. So 50 more years in their life, they haven't grown or they haven't healed or they haven't done better. But I had to individually tell my mother and father that, no, you were not a good mother to me. And, no, you were not a good father to me. You both were abusers. I had to literally get the statement out of my throat and say it to them. And it was another one of those feathers in your cap where you breathe and exhale and you say, I was finally able to say that. So you having the thought to your mother of saying you turned out fine, you had the thought to say that, but I'm going to tell you, if you're still battling with that, you're going to actually need to say the words to her. And, again, forget it being confrontational. Forget her Mm -hmm. acknowledging it, apologizing to it. Say it so you can release it. If you don't say it directly to her, write it down. If you need to write it in a letter or something, mail it to her or journal it, but you need to write the words down and get it and get it out and get it over with. My grandmother. Yeah. My grandmother who raised me. And then I ended up uh, inviting them. Um, The hospital had like a a family meeting kind of thing, you know, and uh, they didn't want to go because they thought that they were going to get blamed, you know, for, for my mental health and stuff. It was my biological father. Well, who it's had probably really deeper pregnant. than that. I can you know. tell you, I know from the yeah, way well, that my father reacts to certain things, he actually mm-hmm. believes that there's some, yeah. I think, child abuse police that are still creeping around our neighborhood to, to see yeah. if he's going to get in trouble. He actually thinks that there is, they're, they're afraid of the exposure. They're, they're afraid of not being seen as this fake perfect parent yeah. that they put out there for other people to believe that they were because 
They bought us the clothes. We had a roof over our head. You had food to eat. As if these were not the basic things you are required to do when you decided to become a parent. I didn't have to become your child. You know what I mean? Exactly. I remember that being something I said to my mother, blurting it out during whatever type of argument, and it caught her Mm -hmm. so off guard. She looked at me with this aghast look, like she heard me, but what exactly does that mean? It's like I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask for you to be my mother, and I never asked for you to abuse me. Yeah, that's right. Those were decisions that you made. You know, yeah. and why you made well, my, them, I don't know, and I don't care. Yeah. But this well, my grandparents, my grandparents did go to that. My grandparents did go to that meeting, and it did open a door for more conversation. You know, um, that would have never happened if they hadn't, you know, come into that one meeting while I was in the psychiatric ward. But it did. It opened up the door where where I, you know, did bring up things that hurt me, and they listened. Good. You know. Um, and, and that was pretty amazing. Yeah, that was really amazing. And I'm, that was when I was like 21 to 30 and, you know, I'm 61 now. And of course they've, they've been gone for a while, but, um, but But yeah, we did get to have, you you needed to do. And another one of those things of put forward on your road to your healing journey. So those, again, the words have to be said, we can't, um, the, the children in us, we have to forgive ourselves as we are now, at the age we are now, for not being able to protect ourselves then. Because, yes, uh, physiologically, we're still the same person. But physically, we're not. Emotionally, we're not. Spiritually, we're not. At I'm almost 50. I'm not the same person that I was when I was 10. My parents are. And I try in vain to discuss with them about, how you can get help to grow and heal. And, of course, they begin with the deflection. There's nothing wrong. I don't need to talk about anything. I don't need to this. Um, So that's where you have to be mindful and consciously cautious to be able Mm -hmm. to change your environment. And that environment means stop the back and forth arguing with your abusers Mm -hmm. and try to go to recovery. Try to find a support group. Oh, if it you means you're going to be locked in a psychiatric facility getting help, so be it. Yeah. You have to change your environment. Right. You said uh, you called them, and but the conversation was only 10 minutes. Do you want to talk about why it was only I 10 minutes? To that. I limit it to that because that's as much as I can stand before um, – the niceties wear off as far as the weather and how this and how that. So it could be a pertinent, uh, like I said, it's a medical issue with me. I had to call and get some information from them. And then even with my mother then, she just grew up not being taught to share information or talk about information. And so I was facing a possible medical issue for something she had gone through herself 20 or 30 years ago. And so it was just, I need to get some background history on you so we can see how this plays out in genetics or it's hereditary or whatever. And she went into a whole song and dance of the hospital I went to is closed, the doctor I had then is probably dead, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't need that. I need you to tell me what you went through through your surgery and your recovery. Can you tell me that information, please? 
it was like pulling teeth from an ant because she would just not. She actually said to me, with me goading her and 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 getting sidetracked with another conversation, mm-hmm. then I would have to slip the question in that I needed to ask, and she would answer it. But she actually thought it was a thing of privacy that she didn't need to share the information with me. Oh. And so my father's a little different. Again, he deflects differently when it comes to the abuse. But when it comes to things that I just need a straight-up-a-down answer, something financially or something legal or something medical, can you answer this for me or I need this from you, blah, blah, blah. He is a fairly straight-up yes and no. But when I get to the reasons why I need this or the reason why I need to ask this is because something with my lupus is showing up again and I need to talk with you guys about why I have lupus in the first place. And then it becomes deflection or he becomes scared or fearful and changes the subject or starts an argument, you know. So the 10 to 15-minute mark for me is about as much as I can stand because I can't get anything real out of them past that point. And it does me no benefit to call them or speak to them any other time during that. I think I called them maybe once at the beginning of last summer. I didn't call them at all through the whole height of COVID because I was focused on me and me being healthy and me knowing that I had lupus with a compromised immune system, knowing that I needed to make it through that and be healthy. So I remember calling them and asking them how were they, were they okay. I had spoken with another aunt of mine. Um, she had told me that they all went and got their immune shot or their um, vaccinations and boosters together and all of that. So I thought to myself, okay, well, I guess I just should call just to make sure that nobody's dead or dying. You know, I just have to put that in my head, just do the dutiful daughter thing. And during that particular conversation, my mother asked me, only because the manner in which she asked the question, she repeated some information that I knew she had just gotten from watching the news or hearing different things like that. I mean, um, I can't remember, but uh, did the medicine and stuff that you have to take for your lupus, are you able to get it? Is that the same type of medicine that you're able to take? And it was. It was one of the pills that President Trump, back during that time was saying that was a good immune suppressant. And it is. It's the same pill that I've been taking for almost 20 years. Uh And she brought it up to mention lupus. And I had to stop her and answer the question. I said, yeah, all that's fine. I said, but do you know that this is the first time since I told you and Dad I was diagnosed with lupus that you have ever asked me how I am or how I'm feeling because of lupus? In 20 years, you've never asked. If I needed help getting to the hospital or I needed help picking up a prescription, I would kind of call again. It would be pulling teeth, but, hey, be a parent and do this for your child. But it was never a caregiving moment of my child has lupus. What do I need to do? So when I asked her that and I said, do you not realize you never asked me in how many years? I didn't just get lupus again because of COVID. I've had it for 20 years. Why have you never showed any concern before now? Comes one of those things again. 
well, I don't know why you're always asking me things like that. And, you know, I just have to go. Do you want to talk to your daddy? you want to talk to your nephews? They're here. I need to go start dinner, stuff like that. And then she just trails off and changes the subject. So I don't get and will never get what I used to expect from them as parents because I had to, again, be mindful that mm-hmm. these individuals – gave birth to me, but they were not my parents. They did not parent me. They gave birth to me, and they raised me, and they abused me. And that is it. I just, because if I continue to have the hope or have the expectation that I'm going to get nurturing from them or an apology from them, I will spend another year, five years, ten years being let down until, as we spoke earlier, these people will be on their deathbed, not being able to utter a word, and they will die bitterly before they apologize to you. Yeah. Um, I know we've spoken in years past. Annie, I remember this coming up in a conversation with us, and um, I remember either it was an apology Annie got or was offered I believe by one of her parents, I can't remember, but it was literally on their deathbed. And I had to say, if it does happen, think about the lifespan of that person. They're 80, let's just say 80 years old, and you're a 50-year-old son or daughter. You spent 50 years of your life waiting for an apology. They spent 50 years of their life not offering an apology So the only time that they do it is that they are facing death and they are terrified of it and they think uttering the words, I'm sorry, for the decades that they haven't done it, they think that they're going to get what I call that emotional compassionate release, like people want to be released from prison, you know, and they give them the compassionate release. They want that emotional release. And it's not for your benefit. They want to offer an apology, and it's a vague, bottomless, empty statement of I'm sorry. But it's never I'm sorry about what. And it's never an accounting of what they're sorry for. They say it because they're trying to grasp at the last straws of clearing their conscience with God. And it's it's never going to benefit you even at that point. And so it's always that deathbed confession, if it ever happens. Again, I can encourage our listeners, don't spend the decades on your life waiting for it because you could have healed more. You could have been around better friends that loved you, that hugged you, that told you they loved you. You start by loving yourself. You start by hugging your children better, loving them better, nurturing them better, being more compassionate as a human being in general, and putting one more foot in front of each other on that healing journey. And before you know it, you'll be able to tell your story how I am now, but I'm not falling apart at the seams as I do it. It doesn't bring up the same cry in me that it did when I was 15 being in the middle of it, or 16, you know. So, again, spend your energy wisely 
on when you're seeking that type of acknowledgement. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I know when I first came on NASCAR, it was like 15 years ago, and I tell my story completely different than I did then. You know, I mean, yes. I had a hard time get, even getting the words out um, because it yes. had been so You get so long. stronger, and th- mm-hmm. that strength yeah. to me is not so much as the physical thing, but it's literally if you were in a gym and you wanted to start being a weightlifter who can pick up 500 pounds, you don't start at 500 pounds. You may start at 50 pounds, and then you work up to 100, and then 150, and so forth and so on. So one foot in front of the other. So that strength to me means that every time you're able to tackle the heavier things more and more, that means you're getting healthier and you're healing more one day at a time, one uh, meeting with us at NASCAR at a time, you know, uh, again, changing your environment, talking less to the abusers, um, engaging less with negative things and more with positive things. And you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be sharing your story or engaging with other people and you find yourself talking about the abuse and guess what? I'm not crying anymore. You know, I'm mm. not a helpless heap of tears and, you know, wiping, you know, snot from my nose anymore. I'm not powerless mm-hmm. anymore. Right. So I want to encourage well, all not, of us to I'm make sure hurting. that you're going to be. Yeah. I mean, I went from not hurting myself, you know, because I was, I was doing cutting and self-harm to, uh, you know, um, working out in my garden and, and wanting my house to look nice and wanting to have healthy relationships and, I mean that stuff didn't just happen overnight. There's there's a lot that went into it. A lot of a lot of hard work, you know. I tell people, you know, yeah. like with my recovery in AA, um, I said, you know, getting sober and drug free is the easy part. Living life on life terms, that that's where you put the work in, you know. That's where you put the work in. And um, guess what? You what's are going worth on. when those results start coming yeah. in. You are worth every yeah. single moment of it. You're worth it. Right. Right. That's right. But I had to believe that I was worth it. I had to believe that, you know, I deserved a good life and I was put on this earth for a purpose. Because I never believed that before. Because I, w- I was told completely the opposite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that brings me to another point here. I want to encourage each and every one of us to start right here, right now, this moment, this very second, to begin to love yourself. What that means is it's going to be a different definition for everyone. But by first forgiving yourself, right, or even apologizing to yourself if necessary, because there's absolutely nothing that we could have done differently at the moment or during the period of time of our abuse, especially if we were a kid, because we were powerless. We were in the literal custody of these people who were our parents, and they are supposed to be parents. They're supposed to be the nurturers and leaders and teachers and guide us. And they didn't. You know, so we have to start with loving ourselves, right? Showing yourself empathy and compassion is going to be vital to your healing journey. So that means you're going to have to find out the things that you enjoy in life, that bring you your smile, that bring you joy, that bring you happiness, that bring you self-fulfillment, 
and you start pouring and engaging in those things more for yourself, not because of what other people are doing and it looks cool to do this or that. This is a part of really finding out who you are and what you want to be instead of just constantly feeling like that kid who was abused because that's a stamp that we carry long after the the literal abuse stops, but because we haven't dealt with the trauma of it, starting on the recovery of it, that we still carry it. So we never really get a chance to find out who we are, which is one of the, the biggest questions that people ask in the world of, like, metaphysical and and transcendental meditation and things of that nature. You're on this earth to find out who you are and, more importantly, what your purpose is. And I am not an abused person. I am not that abused kid anymore. I am not that shame-filled girl that was molested by my father and beat mercilessly enough by my father to not only develop lupus in later years, but he's responsible for myself and my mother losing a significant portion of our hearing in one or more of our ears due to blows to the head. I'm not that person. That's what happened to me, but I'm not that Mm -hmm. person. So we have Mm -hmm. to find out the things that make us happy and bring us joy, and you're going to have to start to give yourself those literal hugs and just begin to love yourself. Start in the morning by waking up and saying, Monica, I love you. And that Mm -hmm. has become part of my mantra over the past several years along my journey was studying in metaphysical sciences. I had to literally Mm -hmm. change my inner dialogue with myself. And once you do that and you begin, again, building that up stronger, it becomes stronger. That wall sooner or later becomes impenetrable. And anyone that comes along and says that, Monica, you're not this, Monica, you're not that, guess what? I don't have to engage in an argument with you. I don't have to debate it with you. I do know that I, for some reason, you showed me a different person than what I thought you were, and here the negative, toxic person in you was showing up. So guess what? You're out of my life. I don't need this. I don't need it from you, and I don't tolerate it. You're out of here. Loving Mm -hmm. myself will be the single biggest weapon that you can develop against Mm -hmm. future toxic or negative behavior and past toxic or negative behavior from trying to reenter your orbit. Loving yourself, Mm -hmm. it's not hard to do. We just don't know how to do it. Well, that's what I say. We weren't really taught. And I also had to uh, mourn my childhood, you know, that that it was something that, you know, um, I can't get back, you know. I mean, I can enjoy my life today. I wake up in the morning and say, this is going to be a wonderful day. When I wake up with that attitude instead of the dread I used to wake up with, oh, my God, I woke up again. It's another day. It's going to be miserable. Instead of just the like- regret and the shame yeah. and yeah. all of that stuff. Again, it's oh, negative self-talk. It yep. comes across in a lot of ways. Negative self-talk, people thinking about maybe they want to – go after a degree or change jobs or they want to do something else that that just obtain a different goal. And if you're telling yourself, I can't do this, or doubting yourself, it's not you that's really doing it. It's still those fragments of the negative stuff that your abuse is putting to your mind when you were younger 
telling you that you were not worthy. So we have to, again, establish what that is and, again, Mm -hmm. start replanting and retraining and rewiring the brain. And you're going to wake up one day and just realize, well, dang, I am a pretty awesome person. Mm -hmm. Not that Mm -hmm. it's anything arrogant behind it, but I'm a good person. Damn it, I'm a good person. Like, you know, they think it happens overnight. And, you know, like you said, uh, trying to find yourself, whatever. I tell people, take risks, you know, go out and try different things. You're going to find some things that you like. Well, don't do that anymore. Or you're going to find some things that you do enjoy or that you'd like to learn how to do. You know, just because you don't know how to cook doesn't mean you can't learn. There's, you know, tons of ways you can right. learn how to cook. There's YouTube videos. Yep. There's, you know, you could ask a friend. But, but to, you know, put up that wall and say, I can't do something just because you were never taught, um, we'll stifle you. If if you want yeah. to do it, then, you know, then you can always change direction. You can always change your mind and go, hey, you know, I decided I'm not cooking. I'm, you know, going to have DoorDash come every day. You know, I mean, you make different choices and change your mind. And I never thought that I exactly. could. Exactly. Once I said something, it's I It's a had positive and healthy choice and something you want yeah. to do for you to hell with what anyone else has to say about it if they cannot join you in that positivity. If they can't join you in it, then you are I'm not going to enable you and 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 summarily participate in you being negative towards me. So that brings right. me to my next point. I want us to set clear boundaries and establish absolute no's so we can avoid potential invasion of negative or toxic behaviors, words, or people. They're just looking for a way to invade your body, your space, or even your peace of mind. So we have to learn to draw a line in the sand and become aware of what negative and toxic behavior, again, it could be, doesn't have to be your dad anymore that was physically abusing you, but how many women that statistics will show that are survivors of domestic violence that they are abused by that husband and that husband has similar traits or personality uh, characteristics that their father did. So literally they married their father, you know, men that marry women who are not nurturing or caregiving, maybe had a mother who was not nurturing or caregiving. Again, people who grow up to become abusers themselves because, They never learned before they begin functioning as an adult in society to not be abusive. So we have to set clear boundaries by establishing first that we're worth it. I am worth good things happening in my life and no longer positive things. So you've got to become fully aware of what is negative and what is positive. You've got to become fully aware of what is toxic or what is healthy. And you've got to set a boundary that, no, I'm not going to allow this in my life, or you're not going to participate in it. And you have to set a clear no with people, places, or things when they're trying to invade it, your space, your body, or your peace of mind. You've got to establish those boundaries. To the point for me, that's one characteristic we talked before about abusers. They are boundaryless people. And what that means is they don't understand boundaries and they don't respect boundaries. They're constantly getting what we call out of pocket. 
they're constantly saying to you or acting to you in a way that they want to act towards you and they don't respect you asking them to tone this down or don't do that or please don't say that because they have no boundaries. Again, they weren't taught mm-hmm. to have any. But it's up to us to make sure that we're going to make these changes in our life for ourselves. And at that point, it's perfectly okay for you to become a self-fulfilled person. doesn't make you selfish mm-hmm. because it, selfish right. means that maybe you still had kids around you and you're not doing things because certain things that you're not doing is going to inadvertently affect your children. No, it means that being self-full is that I'm not going to do things or allow certain things because it doesn't allow me to be my full self. I'm not living in my full potential. I It's chipping away at the fullness of my joy or my happiness. So we have to and learn that I have to be full and whole yeah. and positive. I tell people mm-hmm. is whether or not when you go to the store and you buy a pack of cheese, do you realize that you can buy a pack of Havarti cheese, which is one of my favorites, or I can buy a pack of Swiss cheese. It's primarily going to cost the same amount of money. But you're probably literally missing 25% of the cheese because the Swiss cheese has got holes poked off in it. So Mm -hmm. do you want to be a slice of Swiss cheese or do you want to be a full slice of Havarti cheese when you get ready to make that really tasty grilled cheese sandwich? If I got to pay the same money, I want to have the full experience. Yeah. So I'm going to be a well, self-fulfilled say, person. Say, now, now I want the cake and the frosting because before I used to accept the crumbs and be happy. <laughs> Convince myself go. that's all I deserve. Yeah. All right. My last point here, and um, we'll be able to uh, finish up the call with a few more um, Q&A from my guests before we get out of here tonight. I want us to think about building or rebuilding your personal support, community, and culture. And that could be something as simple as joining a group here like NASCA. And for me, I search Facebook groups, Instagram, different Google searches online. And, for again, it's not me, but this is how the stars align. I was in the throes of beginning my studies of metaphysical sciences. And, again, the more of my studies, the more things that I'm I'm looking into self-healing and beginning my self-work and consciousness and all of that great stuff that we go through uh, when we learn. It's not just a religious or spiritual course. So it really is the study of who you are as a human being and what your purpose is. This particular time was just before the start of COVID, so early 2020. And I came across, again, just searching, 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 groups that help adults recover from abuse. So groups that, you know, I didn't want the national groups of, um, you know, sex trafficking hotlines, rape abuse hotlines, things of that nature. I literally wanted to find somewhere where I could get resources where people were actually speaking as adults and outwardly speaking about their journey for abuse. And I came across a website for NASCA. I remember sending an email, 
and probably not even giving it a day or so to respond. I think I just got anxious, and I ended up placing a phone call, and I got Bill on the phone and just kind of gave him the whole spiel of where I was at that point in time in my life, and he invited me on to, to come on for my first scan with NASCA, yep. I think within like two to three weeks later. So right. it started with me there knowing that I finally hit my landing spot as far as my now work as a counselor and life coach on what all of this recovery, even all of the trauma that I endured, what the purpose of it all was. Because if I can make it through and not have murdered or killed anyone, because we all get to those points where you just want to, I'll kill this person oh, yeah. if I can. You, you really are saying metaphorically is you want to kill the abuse. You want to kill the pain. You don't literally yeah. want to kill the person. But some of yeah. us that go off well, the I, deep I end, wanted to die, but, you know, I tried to commit suicide, but it wasn't that I wanted to die. It was I didn't want to live in pain, right. the pain anymore. Or we want to kill ourselves. That's yeah. a big reason right. for that's coming up with suicide being on the rise, especially in young people, because they have internalized the abuse as if it's their fault. So I'm so happy and thankful I've been able to find this community. So I encourage all of you out there to do the same, okay? You have to remove toxic habits or friendships, establish new friendships, or encourage new friends that you yourself can be a safe space that they can come and speak to about their trauma because helping someone else heal, even just being a shoulder there for them to cry or lean on, it also helps you heal. You can stop negative talk or thoughts, no more bad, unhealthy, literal food to drink, get out and take walks and exercise more, as you said, um, you garden, great for you. I don't think I have a green thumb, but I do love, I've come across a great love for fruits and vegetables. It's really past two years or so with COVID and just really trying to make sure and be conscious of what I'm putting into my body, you know. Remove negative thoughts. When we're focusing on any type of physical exertion, it's almost impossible when you're doing that, when you're exercising. So once you're removing those negative things, then the endorphins get released. You get that feeling of nostalgia. You get that feeling of raise euphoria. You're literally feeling good about yourself. Um, start writing in journals. Read more or um, on anything that's to deal with effective trauma or um, trauma prevention, trauma recovery. And, again, we're talking about mental, emotional, physical abuse, um, or talk with other survivors. And, again, try to reach out to a great group such as us here at NASCA. We are all survivors. We're all professionals, one or the other in our own right, and we're all here for you. So with that being said, um, I'm going to trail off Dan. I'm going to go ahead and leave my contact information again if anyone would like to reach out to me. Uh, you can text me at 678-632-1098. My new Instagram page is M-S-B-T-H-A-T-Healer, Miss B the Healer. That's on Instagram. I am possibly going to go into Twitter with that or maybe start the Facebook group. 
Um, the mm-hmm. subheading for that Instagram page is the Trauma Queen. Uh, I want to be able to get a, a, some type of catchy phrase or something that people can remember. Um, so follow me online, drop a link or request, friend request or something, and I'll definitely reach out to you. And um, we'll be back on uh, next month for another topic mm-hmm. with NASA. So I just wanted, again, to thank everyone who chimed in tonight and who called in. Thank you again for listening. And I wish you all well in your healing journey. Thank you very much. I'm going to end with the um, the uh, serenity prayer that's NASCA that uh, we say at the uh, end of our support group. And it says, Please grant me the serenity to stop beating myself up for not doing things perfectly, the courage to forgive myself because I always try my best, and the wisdom to know that I am a good person with a kind heart. And I think that kind of says a lot. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a lot different message than uh, I grew up hearing, that's for sure. And sometimes it just brings tears to my eyes (laughs) to be able to say that to myself, you know. After all the negative talk, I realized that I was just repeating from uh, from my childhood. And until I really looked at those uh, internal messages I was telling myself, um, I really couldn't change it, you know. I started writing down what some of those messages were, and then I wrote across from him what I'd like to believe, and I put a line through the left side, and I must have done eight, ten pages of this on line paper. And then I went back and started reading some of the first ones that I had done this way, and I went, wow, I can see my mind is shifting over to the right, you know, over to the right side of the page. And uh, it, it's really kind of interesting how um, when you when you document, like you said, the journaling or, you know, changing behaviors or whatever, you know, to hear that it takes 30 days to, to you know, make something, uh, you know, make something kind of imprinted. It does. Um, it, it takes yeah. a while. And actually, I put it in repetition form, and I learned to do that during my years of teaching. So when we're in a space where we're not really happy or joyful, so I learned to start integrating a lot of things through music. Again, when I go to work out or things of that nature, I'm making sure that I'm listening to positive affirmations or mindful mm-hmm. music or something like that. It takes about right. 20 different repetitions. It doesn't matter if it's once a day or you do it 20 individual times spontaneously. Yep. You do it 20 times with no music. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It can take up to 20 to 400 times with no music. Mm-hmm. It just depends on what it is because this is maybe learning right. a physical skill. But if you're in right. a mood or setting where you are calm, you're happy, you're joyful, it can take up to 20 different rep- repetitions as easy as that before it becomes second nature. Mm-hmm. And for me, well, my personal mantra, uh-huh. right. Yeah. Go ahead. I developed a personal mantra for myself, and it's when I wake up in the morning, I say, Monica, I love you. I get up, I stretch, I do all that kind of stuff. But at least once during the day, either in the morning, at night, or before I go to bed, I mm-hmm. reach out and I thank the universe. I give a thankfulness to them, and I thank them yep. for Wisdom, strength, courage, knowledge, vision, patience, and healing. That seven attributes within myself right now I constantly am working on. And every time something new comes up, I add a new thing. And I repeat it 20 different times so I can make sure that I have the repetition of it down pat. I will write it down 
and then I repeat it 20 different times so it can set into memory. Yeah. So, again, it's not overnight, guys. It is a no. journey. It is not a no. sprint. It is mm-hmm. a, what do we call the big races that we do? It's not a sprint. You're not going to get there. It's more of a marathon. No. That's how you have to view yeah. life, and that's how you're yep. going to have to view your healing. Yeah. My therapist asked me how many times do you think you heard that message, just one of those messages, you know. And I couldn't even imagine how many times, quite a few. And and she says, just imagine that you need to at least tell yourself that many times and maybe double. Well, we got 90 seconds left. Thank you again, Monica. And I'm going to play the music for going out. And remember, all the shows are archived. And you can listen to uh, any of the shows. And come on, uh, NASCA, because we got a whole bunch of information on there. Um, can I ask Monica one said. other quick question? Yep. Do you, you remember what the scan number for this show was tonight? Yeah, scan number 3169. 3169. Okay, I'm going to play our going out music, and everybody have a good evening. Good night. Have a good evening, everyone.